Hi, I'm Owen Rubin, and you're listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast. Welcome to the Ted Dabney Experience with your hosts Paul Drury, hello, Tony Temple, hello, and myself Richard May. If this is your first episode, then we should let you know that the podcast is a project conceived largely to allow us to hear stories about the golden age of coin-op video games directly from the people who made them. For this episode, we talk to none other than Mr. Owen Rubin, a gentleman who signed up with Atari when games were still black and white and whose tenure with the company saw him head up the development of such glorious colour vector titles as Space Duel and Major Havoc. Owen tells us about his days working with Ed Logg and Dave Toyer, attending Atari co-founder Nolan Bushnell's infamous pool parties, and his time at Nolan's post-Atari venture, Sente. Owen, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast, and I would like to start by asking... Aren't you the man that made the volcano erupt in Battlezone? <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> and thanks for having me here. H- how did that come about? Why? So Ed Rotberg, who was writing Battlezone at the time, and I were in the same lab. We're kind of sitting with workbenches on opposite walls with our backs to each other. And Ed was usually there before I was. So every time I'd walk into the lab, I'd kind of stick my face in front of his look at the screen and go, is that volcano erupting yet? And he would kind of laugh. And one day I caught him in a very bad mood. And it was like, God damn, if you want the fucking volcano to erupt, do it yourself. (laughs) So I went back to my office and I wrote this code to move these little rocks. And I stuck it on his chair the next day and and circled two areas that just put the position in here. (laughs) And he put it in. And it was just basically me annoying him. I think that says something about the atmosphere there. I mean, were you literally wandering from station to station looking at people's games in development and thinking... It was actually required. Tell us more. So you want... Everybody was supposed to go around and play everybody else's games and then make suggestions. Uh, I mean, like the... I played upsetting uh, Ed Logg considerably every evening after he'd go home, I'd go into his lab and play Asteroids until I filled up the whole high score table with my initials. And he'd come in the next morning and just like, okay. So he actually changed code so that I couldn't put my initials in it for a long time. (laughs) Um, You know, when you're playing something like Asteroids that of course goes on to be Atari's biggest selling game, when it's being developed, do you get a sense of this is going to be huge? Yes and no. There was a saying we used to say is don't let engineers decide which game should be built because Atari had a chance, I think, I don't remember if it was Space Invaders or Pac-Man. One of the two was offered to Atari to distribute and they showed it to engineering and we all went, nah. (laughs) Is that like turning down the Beatles? (laughs) What, these four guys, what are they they ever going to (laughs) do? So we used to laugh and it's like, that was, that was marketing's job, but we would have, cause there were things we thought were a lot of fun to play and they never got made or they got made poorly. You suggest a very cooperative atmosphere there. People giving feedback on other people's games. Yep. But hang on, was there a little bit of rivalry there? Kind of whose game would make the most money out in the arcade? If a game sold enough games and there was some threshold point where they decided that it earned a bonus pool. 
money was thrown in there for every game that sold after a certain amount and it went up, you know, and then it was up to the project team to decide who got it. And they usually distribute it amongst themselves, even if you were someone who helped on the game. But I worked on like sound drivers and sound routines and I thought that should have been and they were not. I did a self-test module. Yeah, I might get paid for it on the first game and then each game successively after that, my amount would get smaller and smaller and smaller. Did you ever resent that, that some of the background work that you were doing was perhaps not uh, acknowledged? Yes, because um, I because I like I thought I should have been in on the bonus on Tempest. And if Dave Torres listened to this, you know, I'm sorry. But a lot of that color pre-work was done when I was starting Space Duel. Uh, I took that over from someone else and turned it into color because um, it was available. But we were they had just come out with Asteroids Deluxe uh, and Asteroids Deluxe jumped into the mix and they said, well, we can't do a third one right away. So they put Space Duel on hold. Right. Um, and that hardware went to Toyer to do Tempest. You know, when I was put off it, I handed him a bunch of stuff and said, here's a bunch of macros I did for doing this. Here's some color routines. Here's the vector generator drivers that we did. And, and a lot of that stuff was just picked up and used over again. And then he would improve it and his improvements went into Space Duel. So this money thing would get in the way. But I think when you're making the game, I think people were pretty much um, happy to help others. I think, uh, example, like I played um, Millipede and when I was playing at Dead Log, I said, it'd be really cool if like these little DDT things that would blow up a circle of stuff to help you out. And then I came a couple of days later and he had put them in because he liked the idea. So we all commented on everybody else's games. I wrote this sound and music generator because I needed it for myself and it got used in a number of games and then Dave Toyer took it and he made a quick mod to it and then Rusty Daw who was there took it and he made I called it RPM um Ruben's pokey music and he changed it to Rusty's pokey music <laughs> and he made it even better and those kind of things got used uh you might know the name Mike Alba he was really one of the guys that did the skunk works underneath the hood you know all the coin routines and a lot of the self-test but yeah we all sort of did that some things that i wrote for myself got used some things i did originally for space duel went to dave toyer for um, tempest so we shared a lot you started at atari in 1976 what do you think they saw in you um when i originally um interviewed i did it on campus at uc berkeley and they rejected me because I thought I was interviewing for a software position and they thought I was interviewing for a hardware position and decided my hardware wasn't uh, up to snuff. And I called them back a couple of days later and said, well, wait a minute, I was interviewing for software. They said, oh, well, that's different. Come on down, you know. <laughs> UC Berkeley, we had a lot of people from Berkeley actually had a, a mixed electrical engineering computer science degree. So you had to know hardware and software. And Atari at that point was going from having all hardware digital logic games to games with processors in them. And I knew how that worked. So even though you got the job as a software engineer, was the fact that you'd got this background uh, in hardware, did that turn out to be pretty useful in the mid-70s? Oh, yeah. People today have no idea what the hardware does. In those days, we had to know exactly what the hardware did to program it. Because you're programming right at the bits. You know, you're pushing bits in, into a device. Uh, it wasn't quite as bad as the 2600 programming was, but you still had to understand how the hardware worked and how to move things around and, you know, what the time constraints were and why they were there. And 
Fascinating. We've said what they've seen in you, this background in both hardware and software. But as you walked in on your first day, what did you see there? Was it what you expected? Um, they had outgrown their building in Los Gatos and rented space behind them in another building that was just across a small parking lot. And that's where they had expanded to. So when I started, the person in the lobby said, well, you go down here and go through that door in the back and go into the building across the parking lot, which I did. And I was met by the guy who was going to be my boss. It was Tom Hogue. And he was walked into this area that had a, a big center common area that was filled with Tank 8 development at the time, and then four offices, all of which were used, and this little tiny narrow thing at the end that was very long and not very wide and said, there's your office. But it had a door. <laughs> he came in and said, well, you're going to build games. There's the hardware that we're working on right now, which was a basic stamp play field and a couple motion objects. It was connected to a Motorola board called a Micbug, which basically had a cable that plugged the processor right into the board, but gave you control over it, which was connected to an original ASR33 teletype. I'm talking about clacky paper type teletype. You were still using paper? Oh, lots of paper. Okay. Um, we had those notebooks that are, have graph paper in them. We actually had to do our designs in those and have them uh, reviewed and stamped that they were seen just to make sure that people <laughs> knew what you were doing. Um, so I used that to draw all my graphics. So you, you suggest that you were left pretty much to decide your own game idea. Early on, yes. Yeah, we had game reviews that sometimes the game review was just engineering. A lot of times it was engineering and marketing and other times it was engineering, marketing and upper management. And they could kill a game or stop a game or change a game anytime they wanted. And it often did happen. Um, there was a VP named Gene Lipkin and he would come in often and he'd look at a game and he'd say, kill it. It's done. Start something else. Wow. We used to call it the ugly baby syndrome. It's your baby. It could be ugly, but it's yours, right? You don't want to kill your baby. So we put interrupt switches underneath the desk <laughs> that would cause the board to crash. So if Gene walked in and we weren't supposed to show it to him, we could push this button without him seeing it and the game would crash. And we go, ah, it's not a good time right now. <laughs> uh, that didn't work for very long, but he, because he knew about it eventually. Oh, and I find it interesting that you develop these games very much as a one-man band. Um, the very first ones, yes. Yeah. Yeah. But at any point, management could come in and kill it. There's no user manual for you to refer to as you're creating your game. And yet these guys could come along and kill it whenever they liked. Well, strangely, there's also no formula. If you take what game was really popular last time and try to use whatever that formula was, it'll probably fail miserably. And we never understood why, but you didn't know a game was good until you actually put it out to let players play it and see if they liked it. Yeah. We used to do this field test where we'd stick an early version out in an arcade somewhere, and then we'd go there and play other games, pretending to play, watching people play our game to see what was right or wrong. Uh, and we improved it that way. But um, I don't want to say a one-man band because there was a hardware engineer who built the hardware. There was a technician that when the software engineer went, wait, this isn't working like it's supposed to, would debug the hardware and decide if software was bad or hardware was bad. And there were support people like um, the woman who wire wrapped the early boards. They were hand-built wire wrap boards. <laughs> they weren't done on circuit boards. So there, And then there's someone who made the harness and someone who made the controls. And we, had, it was a bigger team, even though the game design itself was one person at that time things got a lot more collaborative as time went on with atari you've already mentioned the access to all these resources that you had yeah the artists the industrial engineers who would come up with these you know tremendous bespoke methods of control and i've spoken to um dave toyer about this but he made reference to an ideas book yes owen so it sort of shifted from right you guys have got to come up with your own ideas to 
you can actually go to a book or indeed you could go to a group meeting where these kind of ideas were discussed. Were you conscious of that change? Yeah, I actually liked it. So they would do these brainstorming meetings and there's a there's a video somewhere um you know, one of those many videos that were done about Atari with a bunch of us sitting around a table pretending to be brainstorming. We recreated it for them, which is why some of us laughed at certain jokes because we knew how they played out originally. Like we were talking about pretending to talk about how Centipede came about. And you'll hear us saying, well, what if you did this? And what if you did that? The game was already done by then. So uh, people would laugh. That would never work. <laughs> but I mean, you've completely shattered my dreams there. I remember watching that video and thinking, oh, man, this is great. That was all staged. <laughs> okay. So you'll hear somebody say, maybe you could call it Bug Shooter, which was one of the original names for it. Shifting subjects slightly, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is vector games and specifically what drew you to the vector technology and how did it affect your view of video games when you first saw presumably Lunalander? No, Space War. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'd seen vector drawings on computers because we played with them at Berkeley, but they were never as they were, you know, they were on a round scope with a green phosphor. They just didn't look great. Um, when a Space War came out, Cinematronics game, I played it a lot. We got one at work and it was never unbusy. And they encouraged us to play other games. That was something uh, people wanted to do because you get ideas from other games. I loved the way the graphics look because it was much higher. This is going to sound strange, much higher resolution. You could do really fine graphics uh, and it just looked beautiful. I mean, I, I was just amazed. Now you couldn't draw a lot. You were limited by how much you could draw. But I mean, take asteroids. It, you don't care that the background's black. It's in space. We were owned by Warner Communications at that time and they owned entertainment centers called Malibu Grand Prix. And they were literally, you sat in a go-kart and you drove it around a real track. So I said, we can do Malibu Grand Prix. Let's do that, um, like Battlezone hardware and we'll put it on the ground. It, that's a game that just did not work. Okay. You know, we didn't have the high enough technology to remove invisible lines. And what I mean by that, if an object is in front of an object in back of it, you don't want to see the back's vectors through the one in front. Right. So we couldn't do that. That takes a lot of computing power. When you're trying to drive on the ground where all the lines are pretty low, it just looked awful. We killed that. Um, I'm trying to think, my first entry into video games was probably uh, Space Duel, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, aside from your input into Battlezone, of course. Battlezone. And that game was something else before it started. That was actually a space game, too. That's worth pointing out. Very few games started out as what they ended. They morphed like crazy in the middle. Uh, an example, Tempest started out as first-person uh, invaders from the point of view of the character it's shooting at the bottom. Right. Didn't work. It was kind of hard when you're behind the thing protecting yourself to know if you could shoot at anything because you couldn't see them. So that sort of slowly morphed into this top-down view that became uh, you know, Tempest, which was a great game. Uh, Battlezone started out as a space-flying game that we realized most people don't understand space. We've taken space games and turned them into 2D games. They really are. We can blame things like Star Wars and Star Trek for always having things on the same plane. Did it never occur to them that two ships would not approach each other on the same axis? <laughs> right? They always approach each other facing each other. That's a very good point, for sure. But in this game, you would come up and you'd see the bottom guy tipped over to the left and you go, oh, he must be dead. No, you just came from that direction. That was Ed Rotberg as well. He tried like crazy to make it understandable where you were in space, but the average player just couldn't grasp that. 
Not to get too technical, Owen, but I wanted to ask you about MathBox and how it relates to the Atari vector technology. Um, so MathBox was used in some of the earlier games. It was. But if I look inside my space jewel, which is sitting to my left, um, there's no MathBox in there? There's no 3D in that game. I see. Okay. Snow Mathbox and Major Havoc, that was all faked 3D. I had a nickname at Atari at times was Owen No Math Ruben. If I could do it without complex math, I would. Because we had little tiny 8-bit processors running fairly slowly. Uh, math was difficult to do. And the math box was expensive. I never used it. It never ended up on a... Well, it, it went into that Malibu Grand Prix game mm -hmm. uh, that didn't go out. But for the most part, it was expensive. I think it went into two games. It went into Tempest and it went into, uh, into Battlezone. I can't remember if it went into anything else. And that was Mike Alba. He created the math box. He, he did all the programming on the... You know, those were bit slice processors, very fast and small and quick. And he did he did all the math for Ed. And so they could do the true 3D because literally we were running on less than one megahertz in some cases processors. I mean, I'm sorry, one kilohertz, not megahertz, one kilohertz. Got it. Most of them are around 750 kilohertz. I find it interesting that the technology, I mean, one could argue the technology went backwards because the math box was an expensive piece of kit. So was cost a factor in that or was it just simply a case of you simply decided you didn't need it? Well, it was a factor. So they would tell you that going in because when I started Major Havoc, I wanted to do a lot of 3D stuff because, you know, the perspective changes in that game several times. Yeah. So they said, well, you know, it's very expensive. It takes the cost of the game up. You know, can you do without it? So the guy who was working on the hardware with me um, Doug Snyder said, well, I can put multiple um, processors on the board. And he designed this thing. We discussed out this idea of actually having three microprocessors on the board to do some of the stuff a math box would do in parallel with the game programming. So you weren't stuck in a loop somewhere doing 3D software. And then we came up with a trick to do some of the perspective changing, like when you're all the space waves, that's all done in hardware. The actual game plays on a on a 2D X by Y grid and the hardware is physical hardware is, is adding the perspective. Mm. So it looks 3D. Um, the, the ship, uh, again, enter Mike Alba. He ran the ship design through a program he wrote on a PDP computer or a VAX computer that removed all the hidden lines and gave me images of the ship in different rotations. And I do the animation by changing the image. I don't actually do 3D math on that either. So that's all faked. It's interesting you bring up Major Havoc and the subject of Vax. Can you tell us the story around the fact that Major Havoc has a story behind it and it actually appears on screen, right? The small version of it did. It was a lot longer when I first wrote it. Um, everybody had gone to the, the AMOA, the Amusement Operation of America, the big coin-op show in Chicago or New Orleans. That I can't remember where it was in that year. And I just didn't want to go. So I stayed behind and I said, well, I, I have all this room in the ROM. I'm going to put our names in there. I'm going to have a credit screen roll. It'll show up in, you know, in a track mode. And so I put it in and the VP came back and said, no, it's not going to be in there. Take it out. So I had to put something in there. So I wrote a backstory of which I always had in my head anyway. I had sort of designed Major Havoc based on this idea of a bumbling space hero that was really good, but also kind of uncoordinated. This is why he hits his head all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote a story to go in where the credits were. And it was very long. And the, the thing they didn't like was that because the whole backstory was kind of long on the screen, people would walk up to the game in an arcade and stand there and stare at it to read it, not playing it. 
So they said, no, you got to make that story shorter. It can't be that long. So it's the short story of this Major Havoc who is a clone of the real Major Havoc who goes out to fight these aliens. Mm -hmm. It's very Battlestar Galactica-ish, actually. And you make references to Vax in there, which presumably is a nod to the Vax computer. Yes. So the goal was to have as many computer puns as we could. Um, There are not so many of them in the reduced story, but they're still there. We all worked on Vaxes at the time. That's what we used uh, to develop our games on. Mm. And they were plugged into our game boards. And so we always made fun of it because it was always giving us weird issues. So when someone said the evil Vax is added again, I said, that's the name of the guys. Their homeworld of Maynard for Major Havoc, Maynard, Massachusetts is where uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, the maker of Vax, was headquartered. So... Why does Major Havoc have such a cult following now? Amongst collectors, it's such a revered game. I don't know. As far as I can tell from reading magazine stories, maybe one of them was yours. Um, It was the first game to have idle animation. So when you don't do something, he gets annoyed and taps his foot or leans on the wall. Uh, It was one of the first games to have a full backstory incorporated into it. So that was there. We promised an ending in the game that the game went on for so long um, that they just said, ship it. So we never got to put the homeworld in, but we never took the message out that said, keep playing the homeworld is near, but I don't know. It's, it's, it was probably a very different game of the type. It was more complex. I think that's the thing. It strikes me that there's a handful of later Atari games from the golden age. And I would probably put Gravatar in the same bucket. Yeah that at the time didn't really work in arcades and of course we can now see why but we now appreciate the depth of those games and i think games like gravatar and major havoc have bubbled back up to the surface as classics yeah i it amazes me i get email about it all the time people asking questions and there's a california extreme is a show in california here in in sunnyvale or is it santa clara now where hundreds and hundreds of people bring all their arcade games and they set them up in a big conference center and you pay a flat fee and you get in you can play all these games and uh i've talked at a number of them with other people about you know major havoc and things that happened and what we're doing we are been working with some people although now that i'm at apple i don't have time for as much coming up with a new version called major havoc the promised end which will add like four more levels and the end level where he actually reaches the planet of vax and uh this guy, Jeff Askey, is the one who's doing most of the programming on that. And it was shown at the show this year. It's kind of cool. Wow, fantastic. We probably can't finish on Major Havoc without talking about Mark Cerny, who um, uh, joined the project. Yeah. So um, Mark was fairly new. They found Mark in an arcade He was and watched him play games. And he just like he just was so damn good at all these games. Someone walked up to him at the age, I think, of 17 or 18 and said, how would you like a job making them? Um, he came in and he did a game, I think it was called Quack or it may have been some, or Ducks or something like that. I thought it was a brilliant game. They didn't like it. Um, it was, you know, the, the little square puzzles with, you know, four by four puzzles with 15 numbers on them and you have to slide them around and get them in order. Mm-hmm. He did a screen like that with pieces of, you know, grass, uh, little streams flowing and ducks would appear in the upper left-hand corner and you needed to get them to the pond in the lower right-hand corner by moving these pieces around to make sure they had a contiguous uh, stream to go down. If they fell off the stream, like into a black hole, they would, you'd just see a feather would float down. They would die if they hit grass instead of the water. I thought it was brilliant, but uh, it didn't go. And I don't know why. Um, At about that time, I was on about a year now of working on this game and we kept adding to it and adding to it, Major Havoc. And they assigned Mark to me and to the game to work with me on it. And it, 
The guy's brilliant. I mean, I can't help it. He's just incredibly smart. He came up with the flying fish robots because we had a star castle level in that game, in the space game level, where you fight some things in space where we had to fight a star castle because Tim Skelly was one of my heroes when it came to XY. I was so sorry to hear of his passing recently. Mm. Um, he did, and, and I love that game. So we did that in space and it had to come out because it took too long to play. Um, and he did he did a rework of that with the uh, with the um, flying fish robots, and and he was smart. He he tuned a bunch of stuff. The reason you can't get through the last four levels of the current game is because he tuned it for experts, which in in a sense was correct because that was like the very end of the game. I still can't get through all four of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're that they're hard. Uh, there are people at, and they put vid- YouTube videos up of walking themselves through those levels. And I'm always amazed that, that people still try and still play. So I guess it had some legs, but he was brilliant. I mean, I really, I really enjoyed working with Mark. Obviously, Major Havoc was, I want to say it was Atari's last vector game. I think uh, Star Wars came out after it, actually. Of course it did. Yeah. Yeah, you're quite right. But I mean, you know, arguably Major Havoc was Atari's most in-depth vector game, given, you know, the amount of stuff crammed in there. Um I, I guess this, this sort of leads to the question of why did vector technology die at that point? The monitors were more sensitive than anybody imagined. To do vector right, you know, you want it to smoothly scroll on and off the screen. If you cut things off on the screen, you'd get this jumping kind of effect as things, you know, they, until they get fully on the screen, they don't appear because if any of them are off the screen, they're off the screen. So think of the, the screen you're viewing as the center square of nine squares. And you could draw things in any nine squares. And as you scrolled, and that was done in software, things on and off the screen, they smoothly came on and off in any of those directions. The problem is when you draw on those, you're actually telling the vector generator to send the beam way off to the side of the screen. And it would do that. And that was stressing the hardware that drove the beam and those transistors would blow out constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I added a lot of code to Major Havoc to try to stop that, but it still didn't get rid of it completely. And operators just got tired of them blowing out all the time. Of course, the industry decided to go with Laserdisc games, which, <laughs> which of course, was a, was a great idea. I was involved in that. Yeah. So I was sent in 78 and 79 to take classes at MIT paid for by Atari in um, video production and arcade and video disc production. Uh, spent some time back there with Nicholas Negroponte of the what was then called the Architecture Machine Group that eventually became the Media Lab. And we, we actually made a, a, a Laserdisc of that experience. And I came back to Atari and said, don't do this. The technology is not robust enough to survive in an arcade. And they didn't listen. Owen, I'd like to pull you away from Atari for a moment and um, over to the itinerant tunnel hunt, a favorite title of mine. But although, um, although had solid parentage, found itself being bounced from house to house uh, before finally being released as a Century title with a license by Atari marquee credit. Yes, I love that. Um, it had three names, Tube Chase, Vertigo, and Tunnel Hunt. So Tunnel Hunt started as a vector game. I wanted to have this thing where you had to fly through these tunnels, drawn like the landing sequence of Alien. You know, as they were landing on the planet, you saw the planet rotating and these squares they had to stay in to get the proper landing procedure. And I just love that idea. So we tried to do it in vector, but again, not having hidden line removal, it was hard to tell where the tunnel went when the cubes started moving, these squares started moving behind where they shouldn't be seen. So Dave Sherman had created this incredible hardware that he wasn't sure what to do with that could draw circles and ellipses on the screen and they could be stacked. 
And uh, I said, I want to use it. I want to use it. I can do this tunnel game in that. And it started out very complex. The You would fly through space and you'd see two tunnels and you'd fly into one of them up, down, left, right, and it would split. It would diverge. And as it diverged, arrows would appear and tell you which had the better score. The lower score was an easier tunnel. The higher score was a harder tunnel, but your scoring went up. So a divergent path game that was created years before the likes of Yu Suzuki's Outrun. Yes. And uh, so we put it out on test and it, it earned number two, like for 10 weeks straight. Hmm. And management says, we don't make any game that isn't number one in the arcade. <laughs> and I can't remember what it was up against, but it was up against some pretty tough competition. So they brought it back to us and said to David, can you make the hardware cheaper? Mm-hmm. So he took out the ability to have two circles at the same time on the screen. So now it's one tunnel. So that kind of idea of doing the splits was gone. The ability to do the space thing disappeared. We put it back out on test again. Now you're just flying up, down, left, right. Uh, stole the ships from Star Wars. Oh, yes. <laughs> the TIE Fighters. The uh, ubiquitous visual bad guy shorthand. Yeah. Didn't everybody draw that? Yeah. Who did that? I did that because I just needed something to draw and I did it on graph paper. Right. It it was never put in there to end up staying in the game. It just was something that was in my head because I'd seen Star Wars and I loved it. And uh, nobody in legal even blinked? No. No one said a word to me about that. Um, and so I redid it. We stuck it out on test again for another 10 weeks. A solid number two. Still didn't make number one. They brought it back again. David, can you make it cheaper? Still too expensive if it's going to be a number two game. So David reworked the hardware, took the circles out, and made them squares. So that significantly cost reduced from what it originally was. And that was the, the hardware that I ended up with. Um, it was The game was still rushed, but I kept coming back for little fixes. I redid it. We put it out again. Number two, almost the whole time. We brought it back and said, nope, we're not going to build it. Yeah. So I think it bugged someone in marketing that they couldn't use it. So they offered it for sale, which Atari had never done before. And Exidy took it first. They were actually across a big lot from where we were. We could see their building at that time. And they called it Vertigo and they tested it. And then they decided not to take it and then did their own game called Vertigo, which I thought was kind of sleazy. Um, And then they sold it to Centuri in Florida who put it out. But by the time it got out, it was four years old. It was very dated. But I loved the cabinet. Yeah. That cabinet idea, it didn't quite get what I wanted. But mm-hmm. um, if you've been to Disneyland, the one in near Los Angeles, and you went on the, what's the the mountain? Um, Space Mountain. Space Mountain. When you're, the boarding area had these kind of screens around you with these purple lights behind it. I did, it had a feeling of being on a spaceship. And I loved that. So the original design, I wanted purple lights behind a grid. That all got cost reduced out as well. But I wanted it to feel like you're inside the cockpit. Yeah, for a, for an upright game, it's very immersive. In much the same way that environmental discs of Tron is to me. You walk away dizzy. I, I nev- We never checked. It probably could have caused epileptic fits. We never really checked on that. I also had a great time with the sound. That They put two pokies in it. Pokies were the sound chips from the Atari 800s. And so I did these sounds that did a little bit of beating off each other. So you get that kind of flange sound. It's very, and we put a big speaker in it. So you'd feel that, that sound, uh, which goes up in pitch as you go faster. I love the sound when it starts. It just kind of rumbles in your chest. Oh, and you mentioned the game was sold twice. Do you know who would have actually done that? So would it have been a flamboyant Frank Blue picking up the phone and, you know, flogging the hell out of it. Maybe. Uh, I, Frank was more marketing. Mm. And I don't I don't know this because uh, I wasn't over there, but the split between marketing and sales, we really didn't have a, um, a program to sell our designs to other manufacturers. You know, at, at Atari did everything themselves, right? Mm. So that was, well, at least as far as I know, that was, a, that was a first off. I don't know if they ever did that again. Uh, 
This is the strange part, the way the bonus program worked. Uh, Centuri paid enough for the game to push the game into bonus. <laughs> wow. So even though it failed, I got a small bonus check out of it. And it's also interesting that Century picked it up in the end, because, you know, if you get a phone call from Atari and go, hey, you know, we've developed this really great game and you really should, you know, look at it and, and release it. But clearly the underlying message is this isn't good enough for us, but we think it's good enough for you. Wouldn't you ask that? Why aren't you doing it? Precisely, yeah. Probably said it didn't fit in, you know, we had too much in the pipeline, I'm sure was the answer, which they did. Right. So, you know, they, they had other games to build that were, that were testing better, so they didn't want to do it. But it still tested well. There's a video, one of the places we put it on test was in Seattle, and I don't know if you've seen that video, but there's a video of a guy playing it in a news story from KCTA, I think the station was. He's playing it, and the guy's trying to interview him while he's got his head in this game trying to play it. It's actually very funny. And this guy was just like really into it. I love that video. It's like, someone gets it. Owen, I think you have an arcade record by creating a coin-op with the most buttons on ever. Um, <laughs> it's it's very possible. I'm talking about Orbit from 1978, which I'm pretty sure has got 18 buttons on. Wait a minute. Left, left right, fire thrust, um, shield. So that's one, two, three, four, five. So that's 10 there. Then zero through nine. So there's another nine more plus an enter button plus a cancel button. So there's probably more like 20 on there, maybe. Um, a player one and player two start. It probably got, yeah, 22 maybe. I'd have to look at it again. 18 to control the game, 22 to control the credits. And it's an impressive number. Yeah. What possessed you? <laughs> Not me. So Space War had come out and it was doing phenomenally well, but um, they couldn't build enough of them to get to get them out to foreign countries in Europe and stuff. So Gene Lipkin said, you know, if we do a quick knockoff of this in raster scan, we can sell them in Europe. And he came to me and said, can you make a game in, in 30 days? <laughs> he says, it's, it's got to be Space Wars, but you need to make it different somehow. Okay. Um, the original cabinet was beautiful. And above the player was a touch panel that you could tap to put the numbers in. So it didn't have buttons as much as at a touch panel. So if you look at Space War, it's got a lot of buttons too. Um, you can select all the different modes of the game. So the changes I made were that in Space War, once you picked a mode, you were stuck with it. So I added a reset button so you could reset all the settings and start over. You could change any of the options on the fly. I thought that was important as well. Space War, of course, is the first video game from 1963. Did you ever play that on a, on a mainframe sometime during your college days? Everybody in those days did, yeah. That and Lunar Lander. Lunar Lander was, um, again, Digital Equipment Corporation. Oh, God, a PDP-05, and it was a name for it. I don't remember. They had a screen that went on that, and someone wrote Space War for that as well as a Lunar Lander game, which had something that they didn't put in the Atari game. If you landed successfully, the view zoomed out, and you see the spaceship in a little a guy jumps out it zooms out a little more and there's a mcdonald's on the moon <laughs> and he walks into mcdonald's which i thought was i guess we couldn't do that and then i played it again at the stanford game that actually had a coin box on it probably the first video real coin operated video game yeah galaxy galaxy game i think that one yeah. was wasn't it it was very hard to see because the graphics were very faint uh the other thing is i i loved um computer space i put so much money into computer space you know no one's very first video game which this is the weird part. So computer space sort of was a space war, albeit not as modern. And it didn't do well because people felt left, right, thrust, fire, hyperspace were too difficult of concepts. And later comes along asteroids and space war and people got it by the time because the games had grown up a little. 
And of course, you, you're part of that growing up. So I'm intrigued that you were playing Computer Space and Space War. And then only perhaps six or seven years later, you find yourself being asked to produce a version of that. The problem is I look at the name. Oh, I made a couple of mistakes. Uh, the shot's one dot. One dot on raster doesn't show up very well. So if the screen is turned down too low, um, you get hit with a shot you never see coming. <laughs> <laughs> were you any good at these games? Were, were you a decent gamer, Owen? I was at Space War. Space War had a major flaw, and that's that shots could wrap the screen. Go off the left, come on the right. So you always started with your ships on the opposite edges of the screen. So the first thing you do is you rotate and fire four shots immediately. And I would say about half the time you can hit the other guy's ship because the shots wrap around and get them. And that used to just piss people off. Owen, I'm intrigued that your games have often been bigger critical successes than the commercial successes when you were Atari uh, and then Sente. Has time helped heal that? No. <laughs> I was in the right place at the wrong time. I think Space Duel did okay. It could have done better if they hadn't had Asteroids Deluxe right before it. I think people were kind of burned out on the concept. Um as much as I love the look of Major Havoc in Vector, it probably would have sold a whole lot more if it had been a System 1 game because the arcade owners that hated Vector at that time would have considered buying it. So I also have the honor of something called the Owen Rubin Memorial Game Room <laughs> because for a while I had more games canceled before they went out. So the joke was, you know, this is not any good. Stick it in the Owen Rubin Memorial Game Room, you know. Of those games that didn't come out from the Memorial Room, which one do you wish had made it into the arcade? The original Tunnel Hunt. Right. If I could have done, if it could have had the original cabinet that gave you that feeling of being in Space Mountain, you know, that inside the spaceship, I just loved the way that felt. At the time that you were Atari coin-op, of course, the big money was being made in the consumer division on the the Atari 2600. Um, I just wondered how you felt about that, particularly when sometimes the idea started in coin-op that then went on to the uh, home console, the Atari, and, and made those coders lots of money. How did you feel that, hang on, that's my idea, but someone else is making money out of it, not me? So I knew a lot of the people in that team. I used to spend a lot of time. I was kind of the go-between. We would steal ideas from them. The sounds in Tunnel Hunt came from Star Raiders. Oh, so there was some back and forward then? There was some back and forward, but it did upset a lot of people that we would make a game and not get bonus for it. They would just knock it off completely, you know, do the best version they could. Now, let's understand that programming the 2600 was sort of like pushing a rope. They spent a lot of time trying to make it do the things it did. It wasn't designed to do the things it did later on. Um, Pitfall, for example, made everybody's mouth drop. Like, well, this hardware can't do that, you know? So yes, there was some like, you know, how come they make all this money and they're not giving anything back? And I think an agreement had been made to take a piece of the bonus money from consumer and bring it back to coin-op if it was a coin-op idea and vice versa. If a coin-op idea went to... Uh, if a consumer idea went to coin-op, we would share back. Did you ever consider, you know, moving into the consumer division? Was that ever an option? I was offered it a couple of times, but I, I found it a lot more enjoyable to go out to the arcades and see people playing your games. You can't kind of go knock on someone's door. Hi, I'd like to come watch you play. One of the things at Atari that people often talk about is the power of the marketing. Marketing was all about the home games because you marketed to people. We never marketed 
arcade games. You know, arcade goers were arcade goers. And, you know, the people who played them interstitially um, saw them in, you know, 7-Eleven stores. And sometimes they were in grocery stores and they were in shopping malls in the hallways. Those people would come across it by accident and learn to play. But they were trying to sell the 2600 you bought in your house. And, okay, now I've got this thing. I need more for it. So the marketing for that. So all the ads were about consumer division. So we decided to do our own documentary and our own ads. And that was the video day at Atari, which has slowly leaked its way out to the web, which is fine, I guess. Any favorite segments of that? So my favorite one was actually um, Howie Delman walking up and seeing a new game that he says insert quarter and he puts a quarter and says insert another quarter uh and then it says you know press two player start or add one quarter and press you know it was like very convoluted so he finally he presses start and it says insert coins and he says i inserted my coins and it, the screen comes up and says no you didn't and he starts arguing in a monty python kind of way with the screen and then it flashes game over and he's he kicks the cabinet's head fucking video games <laughs> you know it's like it's just that to me was one of the best ones of those that we did it sounds like there was real camaraderie oh yes did you socialize together a lot of us would go out there was a disco right around the corner we sat parties at nolan's house he would have everybody up to his house he had this really great pool up there uh and then he had a home theater which is something new that i had never seen before he was a very good host uh but as Tari got big he stopped doing that because it was just too many people uh, i bought a house uh, around the time of leaving, just before I left, but I used to have big summer pool parties with all the people I knew from the industry. So we all became pretty good friends, you know, or many people became friends with many people. Not everybody, but most. Do you think that makes, uh, does that make a difference in terms of making good video games? It took some of the competition out. Oh, I got to make a game better than you so mine sells better. Um, there was some, when it came time to bonuses, that's where the big animosity came in. People grumbled about bonuses. In fact, uh, the guy who did Pac-Man, Todd Fry, rumor has it, and I have never confirmed it, but he made around $800,000 on that cartridge, and it was an awful game. Are you going to tell us your biggest bonus, Owen? I don't remember the exact numbers, but enough to put a down payment on a house and buy a Corvette. And I do really need to know, if you all went out dancing, who was the best disco dancer? Um, Chris Downand. And uh, one of our operators, Linda Goitiel, uh, who was one of the computer operators, she was a very good dancer as well. This is what people want to know, who was the best dancer at Atari. And, and I think we've answered that question. There you go. Owen, you're one of a rarefied bunch of people who can speak authoritatively about those early days with Nolan at Atari. And then, of course, uh, the transition that the company went through when he departed. I'll try not to go too long on this, but I, I want to go back to my very beginning I was there maybe three weeks. And as I said, we had eight player tank and it sat running in, in the middle of our common area. And I came back from lunch one time and there's all these guys sitting around it and they're throwing money on the glass. So eight player tank is an interesting game if you have at least two players. Um, we wanted all the, it's a designers, we wanted all the tanks that weren't being played to play automatically. Um, what we discovered in test was that people would walk up and grab the controls and think they were controlling a, an automated tank. So we had to take it out of the game, but we left it in the attract. And it was a lot of randomness. And these executives, is who they were, would come in and they would bet on the, the outcome of who would win the attract mode. Mm -hmm. So I'm watching this. It just it's, I didn't know who any of these guys were. And they all left except one guy with a pipe in his mouth sitting there staring at the screen. So I walked. I didn't know who he was. I had no idea what no one looked like or who he was. I sat down and said, so what's, the, what's wrong? And he said, well, I'm trying to figure out the algorithm for what, who wins. And we just started chatting and he's asking me what I thought of Atari. And, you know, this is good. This could be improvement. That just doesn't work so well. And we talked for about an hour and he shook my hand. It's been nice talking to him. And he walked out and my boss walked up to me and went, oh God, nice knowing you. <laughs> 
because <laughs> I was being very blunt. I didn't know who the guy was because um, he thought like I told him too much. And this guy who ran this company wasn't going to like it. He invited me out to lunch a few days later and we had become good friends. Um, I really I really liked Nolan a lot. Uh, he had left Atari uh, during the Warner time and was could not compete. So I I was there until what eighty uh, four ish, and he had bought a startup called Video. Howie Delman, Ed Rotberg, uh, Robert Flamanti, the graphics guy. Yeah, I'm trying to think. There was a couple sound guy. I mean, they had a lot of good people right. that had gone with him. Uh, Roger Hector. So a bunch of people left Atari and started this company, which we didn't really know what they were going to do mm-hmm. because they were called Video. And then at some point, their name changed to Sente, which for anybody who plays Go. Sente is synonymous to checkmate as it is to check, right? If someone um, says Atari, Sente is kind of the, oh yeah, kind of, well, here's, this is the, I think it might be the ending move. I don't play Go, so I don't really know, but it's in that it beats Atari. And they showed a, they had a uh, booth at the coin-op show in Chicago that was just a big green curtain pulled across. And I have the button here somewhere. It says, Bally, no comment, because he couldn't talk about his games yet. Anyway, uh, the game industry kind of fell a little bit. They asked for people to volunteer to be laid off, and I agreed to be laid off. I was working for Rick at the time. He said, well, we can probably get you to stay on. I said, no, I'm, I'm done. Time to move. And I, I left on a Friday and joined Bally on a Monday. Were you, were you sold on the business model of what, what Sente was trying to do? It was a very brilliant idea, except that they didn't actually go talk to the people who moved games. Right. So their basic concept was make a big heavy cabinet that never moves and you just plug in a cartridge and put on some graphics. Except that what they found out was that you went out onto the field and these same big brutes who moved video games around would just grab the game, stick it on a truck, move the other one off because that's what they knew how to do. So the concept kind of got lost because no one had asked the guys who moved the games. They didn't have to think about it. Plugging in a cartridge and changing the controls and all that, that would require some thinking and it wasn't as easy as just pick up game, move to a new location, put game down. It's amazing, isn't it? Because Sente's business model really predated the Jammer model. Yeah. I'm I'm amazed it didn't work as a concept. I think the industry had grown up as well. You know, um, mm. by that time, um, they were doing, you know, what do you call refurb kits or change kits. You know, um, Tempest became a major havoc. So this right. concept of updating a game with a new board, new controls and stuff in the cabinet you already have was becoming well known. They were doing a lot of retrofits for games. You could sell the, the conversion kit for cheaper Um so I think the industry kind of figured that out. So it, Sente had done that thing 10 years later, 12 years later. It might have been successful. Yeah. And if they'd written some decent games, of course. Yeah. we. Th- you said that out loud. Sorry. There was a couple good games. That, there was a couple good games there. <laughs> yeah. My favorite was, was it called? Stalker. Right. Because we used to laugh that the two games that were very popular were shooting games and driving games. So why don't we, I wanted to call the game Drive-By. No one thought that was funny. Um, but the idea of shooting and driving at the same time, we thought would be a lot of fun, right? Shrike Avenger, you must have a ton of stories there, Owen. So as I understand it, you you were basically brought in to get that game out the door, right? So um, I was doing games, but I also took over as their IT manager. They had a VAX there and we actually used local PCs. You could do all your programming locally and the VAX was basically a big digital file store. Uh, So I had to maintain that it would go down or go offline or something would break. So I spent a lot of my time doing that. Um, the guy they had hired to do Strike Avenger on the hardware originally was not progressing at the speed I think that the management would have liked it to progress. So um, they said, well, Owen can do it. They laid a few people off and they said, yeah, what can you do in 30 days, really? 
that seems to follow me through the industry now, doesn't it? I, well, I can try to make a game. So that was shortly after Last Starfighter. Right. So I, I did a quick theme where you shot at little test things that flew out in front of you. Then you shot at spaceships as they moved around. And you were supposed to shoot at the mothership. It was supposed to you know work its way up and you shoot the guns out and then blow it up. We put it on test at Great America, um, which was not too far from us. I think we put four cabinets out. So let me explain what you've got here. You've got a big, heavy cabinet on top of a large base. It is held up in the front by a, a U-joint out of a Corvette, a very strong U-joint that would that it would pivot on. The back is on two, they're called ball screws. They're two linear actuators that move in and out. So I can move the back two corners up and down so I can get kind of a circular motion. And the motion is driven by its own computer. And I sent commands to it from the game of what I wanted to move left, move right, up, down. But we wrote into that into that code in the base all these things to prevent the thing from driving a ball screw off the end. So those were all interrupt driven and they sent those signals to the motion controller to stop now. Then there was a cable attached to the bottom of the cabinet so that even if the whole thing wasn't there, it wouldn't go flying away. Then I wrote software in the game controller that would move everything to its limits. And I could read those limits. And I put software that would never let them go beyond the limits. I would do hard stops and stuff. So there was all this stuff to keep it from doing anything crazy. I mean, we we beat the heck out of it. So we stick it on field test. And we're all out there watching in the arcade. And people are playing and having fun with it. It had a seatbelt because it got kind of, it could throw you around a bit. And this one kid was playing. And we really don't know what went wrong. But both ball screws shot up straight up, literally flipped the top piece over onto its top. It broke the cables and everything and landed upside down in front of the game. (laughs) And all of us are like, holy crap. Jesus. The kid climbs out going, that's so cool. You know, it's like they said you can die in that game. We didn't exactly mean that. (laughs) (laughs) One of them turned up in uh, Germany on eBay a few years back. Seriously? Yeah, and it had been converted into a... Sega G-Lock, would you believe? (laughs) I like that. Owen, an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for being on the podcast and thanks for all the wonderful games that you've left us with. It's fun to tell the stories. I, you know, they were good times. I wouldn't have traded them for anything. I think about, I came out of school going, I'm going to program Omdahl computers, you know, or IBM computers and just happened to luck into Atari. I mean, there at the right time, I was the fourth or fifth programmer. So we got to create a lot of this mess. We were just making it up as we went along. Owen, thank you, sir. Yeah, same. Thank you, Owen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. You've been listening to the Ted Dabney Experience Podcast with me, Richard May, Retro Gamer Magazine's Paul Drury, and arcade blogger, Tony Temple. The show was produced and edited by myself with a bespoke score and sound suite by Ghost of Wood. Additional technical support by Jason Arbor.
Thank <laughs> you.